Let's open our Bibles uh, this morning to Matthew chapter 5 and verses 31 and 32. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. And we want to talk today about what Jesus had to say about the permanence of marriage. Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32 read like this. Furthermore, it's been said, whoever divorces his wife, let him give her a certificate of divorce. But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except sexual immorality, causes her to commit adultery. And whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Let's talk to the Lord. Lord Jesus, this morning we have just feasted on these songs about your grace and about your intent to take broken, shame-filled, sinful sinners and make them beautiful trophies of your grace. That's had to be encouraging to everybody whose heart is tender and repentant here this morning. We want to be among those, Lord, who, who don't present ourselves before you as having something to offer, but of those who present ourselves before you as those who need everything you have to give. And it's, it makes me very conscious this morning as I preach to dear ones that you love your your precious creation and many of your own children here who've been through many different kinds of heartaches in life because of the sin curse that we want to approach what we're talking about here in a way that we're faithful to you and that you're pleased with what we say and that we say what you said. And we also want to be gentle and careful with those whom you love, tender hearts that have come here for help today come here for strength and sustenance, for nourishment. They've come here, Lord, because their souls are thirsty, some struggling with dark heartaches, uh, shame, hurt, bitterness, guilt, even from the past, and need help. And so I ask you humbly today, as we just are faithful to your word, that you would be faithful to help us. We know that you will, and we thank you for that, Lord Jesus. Amen. Um, some of you probably know that I wrote a book. It was a self-published book called Sunset on Summer. I'm your pastor, so you're supposed to have read every word of that book. If you haven't, then you can repent and read it real fast, and I'll forgive you. I'm that kind of a guy. I'm big about that kind of a thing. I always tell people, if you read my book, you'll laugh, you'll cry, or you don't have a heart. Um, I'm writing another book. And this, uh, I actually have a number of them on my laptop, but I'm writing another book, and I'm not sure what I'll call this book, but it's a book that I use stories from my, my grandfather's life and my grandfather's farm to teach lessons that I want my kids to know and to believe. And it, they, it's, a, it's, it's a book of stories, but each of the stories has with it a, a truth that I want to go down deep into the souls of my kids, like a conviction. I want to root conviction in their souls. Lois and I, of course, I say I, and I didn't have any children alone. Lois helped me a bit. Uh, we, our, our children are precious to us, as I know your children are precious to you. And when I uh, get to a hard spot in the Scriptures, when I know it's going to be painful for people, one of the things that helps me a lot is to remember that my children are listening to what I say. And I want them to be as happy as it's humanly possible for them to be. And one of the things I think about is you. Not just what you've been through or what you're going through now, but your desires for your children. Because I know you want your children and your children's children to be as happy as, and as holy as it's humanly possible to be. We live in a culture that's very confused and dark and hurting. And we, it's easy for us to be influenced by that culture. What I have done in my, my book I, is I've written so that my children would read these stories, their hearts would be stirred about things in our family's history, but, they would, but it would point them to the verities of the Bible. In other words, truths that have always been true and that will always be true in the Bible so that they will put their roots down in the Bible so that their hearts will be delivered from their own foolishness, the foolishness they might have inherited from their parents, their own understanding, like it says in Proverbs chapter 3 and verse 5, from the deceit of their own hearts, and especially from the contamination of the world, the godless culture in which we live, 
which is not a friend of faith and hates God and hates the things of God and it's confused. And so we don't want that. We don't want that for us and we don't want that for our kids or our grandchildren. And I don't want it for you or your kids or your grandchildren. And it's a, if you'll take what I have to say and, and the teaching that Jesus has given us here today in that light, I think it will be easier for you to understand the, the motive that we have in our heart. These are perilous times, the Bible says. You know that we live in dangerous, turbulent times. You don't dare build your family on, on quicksand. You don't dare build a house on a, on, a, on a foundation that's not firm when you know that turbulent times are coming. Now more than any other time, it's important that we get our roots down in the Word of God, that we build our foundation on things we know are true. What I often do when I'm meeting with couples before they marry is um, I, I always think they're not really going to listen to much of anything I have to say. They're in that starry-eyed wonder of romance. And so they basically, they're very polite usually, very kind, very, very polite uh, to me as a pastor. And they listen to what I have to say. But I always get the impression what they're really saying is, Pastor, tell us what we got to do for you to say the words and for us to use the building so that we can get on with what we want to do because we want to be married. And I totally understand that. And I always say to them, hey, after six months or after a year of marriage, can we have, uh, can you come back in and then we can talk and then you will listen to me. You're laughing because you know that's true. It's like, God, help us. You know, when you get married, it's like, you need help, right? It's true. And uh, so one of the things I do with the young people is I, I like to say to them, I've noticed this. I've noticed that, we, that often these young people are, are all of us as believers, even as Christians, we have our opinions. We believe certain things. We, we've come to believe certain things. We have, usually people have pretty firm opinions, depending on whether they express them openly or not. They, they kind of know what they think about stuff. But one thing I've noticed is that even though that people usually have strong opinions and they placard their opinions and they're not shy about their opinions, they often don't have their opinions rooted in the Bible. Their opinions and their feelings and their ideas are things that they came by kind of ad hoc, the things that kind of came by with a mixture of things, stuff they've heard in the Bible, things they feel, and experiences that they've had, strong emotions that they've had, um, you know, teaching of people that may or, not, may or may not be really faithful with a text of Scripture. It's really, it's really not that common for people to say, I believe the Bible is God's Word, and even if I don't feel like a certain thing in the Bible is true, if the Bible says it, I'm going to build my life on that. And that's one of the reasons why we have such chaos in our culture is because every man does that which is right in his own eyes and then trouble, trouble always comes. And so what I do with the, that couple is I often say to them, hey, let's get a, the Bible open in our lap. Let's get the Bible open in our lap. Because it's not going to help them to, into, into marriage when you're really in the thick of it, you know, and you're really struggling, say, to work out some difficult knot, you know, in your marriage. It's not going to help to say, let's see, what did the pastor believe about this? What did my grandma think about this? What if Phil Donahue? Did any of you remember Phil Donahue? That was like a long time ago. What is Oprah? I don't know. I'm told my wife always tells me not to pick on Oprah, so I'm not. Pick, I just want to tell you I'm not picking on Oprah. I'm sure she's a nice pagan. I mean, a nice lady. She doesn't know Jesus. You know what I'm saying? I, I, I'm not picking on her. She doesn't know the Lord, so obviously she's trying to help people. But the counsel that she gives isn't rooted in the Bible. That's what I'm trying to say. I'm not picking on her. That's true about a lot of people. You work with the nice people, and they're trying, but they are clueless. In terms of, so, and, that's, and the sad part about it is that Christians really frequently do the same thing with little half-scripture verses and in, inspiring ideas that really aren't rooted in what does the Bible command and what did Jesus say. That's what I'm saying. And so as we approach this, we have two verses we're looking at. What did Jesus say about this? We'll look at some other things in the Bible in the time that we have to talk about this. I'm talking here about the importance of the permanence of marriage. And I want you to have your Bible open in your lap. That's why we're starting in Matthew chapter 5, verses 31 and 32. I want to try to explain what this means. It's pretty clear. I want to explain what it means. And here's kind of like the, the direction I'm headed if I'm able to get through the material that I have. I think I can. Um, really kind of four, four things I want you to see. The permanence of marriage, I want you to see this. And I believe that Jesus is teaching this very clearly, the permanence of marriage. And then I want to talk briefly, and I don't need to talk a long time about it because I think most of us understand it, but I want to talk briefly about the pain of divorce. The permanence of marriage and the pain of divorce. It would be tempting to take a passage like this and just preach on marriage, but the passage isn't about marriage. The, ma- the passage is about divorce. So we need to talk about that because Jesus did. You know, as a church, let me just interrupt myself to say, 
Can I do that? Can I interrupt myself? Does that make sense to you? I'm interrupting myself to say this, that one of the things that's unique about our church, and there are other churches like ours that are faithful about this too, but, but that is that we're not just committed to saying things that are true. We're trying to say all the things that are true. That's a big deal. In other words, you might go to church and they might say things that are not true. A lot of churches don't say things that they should say that are true. Well, that's obviously wrong. And sometimes people in churches actually teach things that are false. Like one very popular teacher in West Michigan now, his new book, it looks like he's going to teach that there's nobody really in hell. Well, that's, his new book is contradictory with Jesus' book, so that would be a problem. So, but, but then there are churches that teach, everything they teach is true, but they just kind of skip over parts that are hard to talk about. Hey, I'm sympathetic with that. But here's the thing. If we're conscientious about people and making people happy and pleasing people, then there are parts we're going to skip, right? But if, our, if we're conscientious about pleasing God and doing what Jesus said, and we really genuinely love people, then we don't skip any parts. We don't give more weight to them than the Bible gives to them, and we don't give less weight than the Bible. That's what we're trying to do here. So interrupting myself, let me go back to what I was saying. Four things. The permanence of marriage, the pain of divorce, and then, and I think it's helpful to ask ourselves the question, what about the problem? I call it the problem of exceptions. The problem of exceptions. I believe there are a number of places in the Bible talk about marriage and and they talk about the permanence of marriage. And there are two places in the Bible. They're both in Matthew. One is our text today and one is in Matthew 19 that appear to give exceptions for divorce. And we want to talk about what do we believe about those exceptions for divorce. I think it would be helpful for you to hear what we believe as a church, what our pastors believe on this. And then finally, what about people who've been divorced? And that would include a number of, of us today. It would also include probably somebody in every family. What about that? I mean, what if, what if you've been divorced? What about that? And that's going to be a word of hope. I just want to give a word of hope and clarity. How do I see myself? What can I do? What should I do if divorce has been a part of my life? This, this is what we're going to try to cover today. And so you can just like be praying in your little mind or your big mind right there while I'm speaking that I'd be able to cover these four things because I think they're important to us. Let's talk first about the permanence of marriage. Just reading again what Jesus said. Jesus is in the middle of now a message and we're just taking pieces at a time. Six different times he uses a formula where he says, you have heard, but I say, you have heard, but I say. In every case, it's keyed on chapter 5 and verse 20 where he says, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you're, you're really not even a Christian. That's what he's saying. You will in no case enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, in every case where he gives this formula, what Jesus demands is more demanding, it's more difficult than even the most conservative religious people of his time. In every single case, Jesus is demanding more than the most conservative religious people of his time, the highly, the highly regarded Pharisees. And I believe this section that we're talking about is no exception to that. Jesus is going to say, this is what you've heard. Now, there are people that have a low view of divorce or marriage. There are people who have a high view of divorce or marriage. And I want you to understand that I have an even higher view than the most conservative people that you know. I have an even higher view of divorce and remarriage. So we'll explain that here. Jesus is talking about the permanence of marriage. God's ideal for marriage, I think you would agree, God's ideal for marriage is what? It's for life. We acknowledge this when we make wedding vows. We always make wedding vows for life. The scriptures teach that. The purposes of marriage call for permanence. The very things like what's God's design for marriage? Well, we might say, well, one of the things that comes to our mind immediately is sexual fulfillment. Again, every one of these purposes of marriage requires permanence in marriage for them to be at their apex or at their peak. One would be sexual fulfillment. Obviously, that's interfered with in a great way if marriage isn't permanent. Companionship. Lifelong companionship is the idea of the Bible. The Bible says children in Malachi, it's called a godly seed. God desires a godly seed and implies very clearly that, that a godly seed it requires permanence of marriage, an idea of permanence of marriage. The Bible also says that ministry is the purpose of marriage, that people get together and they're able to pray better and serve together in ministry. And obviously that requires permanence. Personal growth is the purpose of marriage. And that requires permanence. But the major reason for 
the major picture that marriage is supposed to supply to the world and the major reason for marriage in the Bible, no question about it, especially if you take your Bibles and you look in Matthew chapter, I'm sorry, in Ephesians chapter 5, in the key passage there on marriage, you can see that it's clearly saying that the main purpose of marriage is for a man and a woman to mirror the permanence of God's love for his church and the permanence of God's, the church's love for her groom, the bride for the groom Jesus, into the world. In other words, the main purpose for marriage is to show the permanence of God's love for his bride. The main purpose of marriage is to show the permanence of the bride's love for her Christ. And so then that picture, which is the main purpose of marriage, requires, it demands permanence and for us to have a view of permanence in marriage. I want to talk briefly here about the pain of divorce. And I want to talk long about it because I don't need to convince you. Interesting thing happened. I kind of forgot our family was supposed to sing today. Pastor Pine doesn't ever forget anything. And he sent me an email reminding me. And, uh, well, he does, but I he's, in three years he hasn't. So anyway, so he, so he, um, he sent me an email and said, don't forget your, pa- your family sing. I'm like, oh, great. I wanted to write back and go, could you have us sing on a not divorce Sunday? I'm like, can you please explain to me what do you sing on divorce? So I asked him, please send me a list of songs on divorce we could sing. He wrote back and said, you're on your own. You know, I'm making that <laughs> I'm making that up. It's kind of like that. Our exchange was like, good luck, you know. I'm like, wow, that's terrible. So I'm working and I'm studying. I'm thinking, like, what do you sing about divorce? It's a, it's a, it's a painful subject. And I was like, get your hymn book out. There aren't any really divorce songs in a hymn book. You listen to Christian radios, it's no divorce songs. And then it occurred to me, wow, the church is not singing about divorce. But the world is singing about divorce. Anyway, we don't want to to be too quick to condemn them because people sing about what they're going through, the angst of their soul, the pain, the difficulties that they have. They sing, they write songs about that, and they say true things in those songs. And I actually spent a little bit of time looking at it. It was actually not really funny, you know. Songs about divorce in our culture, there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of them. And sometimes they would just reduce you to tears, especially if you watch the videos with them. I even did that a little bit. I posted one on my Facebook. Just cry when I saw it. Divorce, the culture's lamenting about it. It's hurt, it's painful, it's difficult. Even people who don't know the Lord, who don't believe the Bible, know that, pain, that, that divorce is one of the most painful things that a human being can ever experience. And so I think it would be important for us to stop and to say, in this sense, our culture really does agree with God because God uses strong language in the Bible about divorce. God says he hates divorce. Why divorce is bad? Dark shame, guilt, fear, uncertainty often follow divorce for many, many years. Divorce has a devastating effect on a family. It has a damaging effect on children. What I'm saying here isn't to deepen your pain if you've been through it. I think many of you would come and if you were able to, you would come and you would give a testimony to that same effect. You would say, Pastor, what you're saying is true because I've experienced it. That's what I'm trying to say here. Divorce has a devastating effect. It's an effect on our work. It is a social effect. Often people who are divorced feel like they're being rejected at church or, or in social circles, even when they're not. And sometimes they are. And there's another sin that maybe people who, they would be divorced if their wife wasn't such a saint who sit in judgment on people who are divorced because their wife wasn't such a saint. It's probably a bad time to say it, but when I give marital counseling and someone comes to me, they often will tell reasons why they want to separate or divorce. And I will listen to them, and I will often want to hurry home to my own wife and seek her forgiveness because she could say the same things about me. She could talk about my insensitivity. She could talk about my selfishness. She could talk about my failures. And yet because of her merciful heart, because of her faithfulness to God, because she believes the Bible, I'm a married man today, not God forbid otherwise. So if in the church people are divorced and they come to the church to have help and to have encouragement and there's a spirit of condemnation or judgmental spirit, God forbid that they should ever sense that among people who are only Christians because God forgave them of their dark, shameful past. Divorce 
is such a devastating thing that we should sympathize with people who have been victimized by it. We should also sympathize with people who themselves have sinned in this area and have come to and have not yet come to repentance or have come to repentance. We should have sympathy. Divorce has an agonizing effect on children. There's often courtroom controversy that kind of can that could drag out for decades after that. Parents often pray their children won't be scarred by their divorce. Children are more likely to cohabit outside of marriage if their parents divorce. I talk with them often. I say, why did you live together when you weren't married? And they said, well, I know the Bible says I shouldn't have done that, but my parents, I just didn't want to get into a relationship like they had, so I thought I would just try it out first. Well, then, of course, obviously that's bringing great harm to them because the Bible says God will judge fornication like that. It damages the picture of Christ's relationship to the church, as I've mentioned, and the church's relationship to Christ. That's one of the reasons God hates divorce. And it's clear from the reading of Scripture, but in America, more than four out of ten couples will divorce. It's a social plague in our time. And God loves people, and he loves marriage, and he loves righteousness. And because of that, he hates divorce. Now, this would bring us to, to look at this passage and to say, well, then there are any times that divorce is okay. Are there any times when there's an exception or a time when a divorce is the right thing to do? I don't believe so. But there, is, there are in Matthew 5, our text, and Matthew 19, clauses that sometimes Bible students call exception clauses. They would be the single loophole that you can end a marriage and maybe even perhaps remarry. This is what verse 32 says, But I say to you, whoever divorces his wife for any reason, except, and this is unfortunate translation, sexual immorality is the, the word there. That's, a, that's an interpretive phrase in this particular translation. In the King James Version, I think it says fornication. Wasn't it? In the King James, was it? Yeah, fornication. Pornia is the word in the Greek causes her to commit adultery, and whoever marries a woman who is divorced commits adultery. Now I want to talk to you here about why I believe, and our pastors believe this, why we believe there are really no exceptions in marriage, even though you have this clause where, where Jesus has said two times, as Matthew records what Jesus taught to a Jewish audience two times, he says, except for the cause of pornea or, or immorality or sexual immorality. What does this mean? What's this referring to? What we want to do, and I, I didn't do it today, but I, I thought about bringing like 10 books and setting, t- imagine there are 10 books that are sitting, say, here in the middle. And over here, I'm going to put a book, and I'm going to stack eight books, and over here, I'm going to stack two books. Now, explain what I'm saying. These 10 books would represent 10 of the major places the Bible talks about marriage or divorce or the permanence of marriage. In those 10 places, I would take eight of those passages. We would take Genesis chapter 2. We would take... Deuteronomy chapter 24, we would take Malachi chapter 2, we would take Jesus' statement in Luke, we would take Jesus' statement in Mark, we would take Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, we would take Paul's statement in Romans chapter 7, and we would stack them all over here. We would have eight passages at least in the stack over here that never says in any of those passages that it's right for a Christian person to seek a divorce. You have all these eight passages on this side over here. These two passages that Jesus gave in Matthew 5 and Matthew 19 that appear to say there is an exception would be over here. So imagine you have eight passages that don't say anything about divorce or remarriage being okay over here, and you have two passages that have the exception over here. Let me ask you this question, and I'm going to supply a a suggestion for you, an answer. Would you interpret these passages, eight of these, in the light of these two, or would you interpret these two in the light of these eight There's a hermeneutical principle here. There's a Bible interpretation principle here. There's this idea, the analogy of faith, that the Bible is its own best commentary. So we're to take all the biblical material, study it together before we come to final conclusions about what the Bible teaches about anything. And so when we do this and we we study all the Bible material together, then one of the things that we would say is the passages that are unclear should yield to the passages that are clear. The, in, in normal circumstances, the majority passages, the minority passages should be interpreted in the light of the majority passages. Am I making sense there? This is what I am saying here. So I want to give you four reasons why I believe, our pastors believe this, and though we are not in the, I, would, I need to tell you, we're not in the majority in evangelical church today of the pastor's view of divorce and remarriage. We believe no divorce 
no remarriage. And we don't believe there are any exceptions for that in marriage. And the reason that we believe that, I'll explain to you here today. I want to acknowledge initially, immediately, that we're in the minority on this in terms of modern evangelicalism. The modern evangelical church you know, has a couple of different views. Some would say divorce is allowable but not remarriage, and many would say divorce is allowable if uh, adultery happens, a continual state of adultery and so forth, and, and if adultery happens, divorce is allowable, and if divorce is allowable, remarriage is allowable. Others would say no, no if divorce happens, remarriage isn't allowable. And what we're saying here is we believe that these passages, and I believe this passage is teaching Something else than that you have an exception for adultery in order to get divorced if there's been adultery in your marriage. I'm going to tell you four reasons why, why we understand these, how we understand these exception passages. For, first reason, I believe these exceptions, passages are not exceptions. In other words, they don't give you a, a loophole to be divorced and remarried if there was adultery in your marriage is because the other passages have no exception clause attached to them. In Mark uh, chapter 10, uh, in verse 2, let me read Mark 10 and, and verse uh, 11 and 12. Jesus says, they said to him, uh, um, he said, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. If a woman divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. There's no exception. There's no qualification to that. That's just the plain teaching of Jesus in Matthew chapter, or Mark chapter 10. In Luke, a chapter, um, in Luke chapter 16, Jesus is quoted in, in Luke, speaking of verse 18, chapter 16, verse 18, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery. And whoever marries her who is divorced from her husband commits adultery. There are no qualifications, there are no exceptions added to this. This would be uh, also true when you, when you look that it, um, Paul is talking here about being free from the law, and he's using, it's in, in Romans chapter 7 is where I'm going next, and Paul's talking about being free from the law, and he's using marriage as an example of this. I want you to hear what, what Paul said in, in Romans 7, because it has something to do with the permanence of marriage. Do you not know, brethren, for I speak to those who know the law, that the law has dominion over a man as long as he lives? For the woman who has a husband is bound by the law to her husband as long as he lives. Notice that there's no exception given here. But if the husband dies, she's released from the law of her husband. So then if while her husband lives, she marries another man, she will be called an adulteress. But if her husband dies, she is free from that law, so she is no adulteress, though she has married another man. In other words, do you see an exception clause in that? Not at all. It's very clear, no exceptions. So it would be also true in 1 Corinthians chapter 7, verses 10 through 16. Now to the married I command, yet not I, but the Lord, a wife is not to depart from her husband. But even if she does depart, let her remain unmarried or be reconciled to her husband. A husband is not to divorce his wife. Four times in these brief passages, it either says a husband is not to divorce his wife or a wife is not to divorce her husband. It's very clear. Don't divorce. And it specifically says that. Verse 12, but, but to the rest... I, not the Lord, say if, if any brother has, has a wife who does not believe, she's willing to live with him, let him not divorce her. Paul's saying, I, not the Lord. In other words, he's not saying, I don't have a direct quote from Jesus, but Paul is writing under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And he's saying, let her not divorce him. Verse 14, the unbelieving husband sanctified by the wife. The unbelieving wife is sanctified by the husband. Otherwise, your children would be unclean, but now they are holy. But if the unbeliever departs, you notice the word here is departs. He desires separation. Verse 15. He doesn't say divorce. He can say divorce. He said it four times. He doesn't say that. If he departs, let him depart. A brother or sister is not under bondage in such cases, but God has called us to peace. In other words, if you are married to an unbeliever, the unbeliever leaves you, deserts you, departs from you. It doesn't mean that you're supposed to get into a fight with them. You're supposed to live at peace with them. They, they do that. Look at verse 39. It's a reiteration at the end here of this same truth. A wife is bound by law as long as her husband lives. But if her husband dies, she's at liberty to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. In other words, only a believer. You see what I'm saying? We have passage after passage after passage after passage that says, don't divorce. If you divorce, don't remarry. If you remarry after you divorce, you commit the sin of adultery. This is very serious business, especially when you couple these passages with other warnings in the Bible about what happens to people who live who are in adultery. It's very sobering. It's very serious. We have to take that very seriously. 
Why do we believe this means something else? Because none of the other passages have exception clauses, neither Genesis 2 or Deuteronomy 24. And we'll get to that in a moment because Deuteronomy 24 you have to deal with because in Matthew 5, Jesus is referring to the case law in Deuteronomy 24. Not the Ten Commandments, but the, how the Ten Commandments are applied in case law in Moses' time in Deuteronomy 24. And you learn something interesting uh, from that. The second reason, other passages have no exception clause. Second reason we believe that these exceptions are not exceptions for adultery, for, to divorce and remarry because of adultery, is because the passages in Matthew 5 and 19 are, are referring to divorce, I believe, during the betrothal period or because of unfaithfulness during betrothal. Now, this is why you would see it in Matthew, but you wouldn't see it in Mark, or you wouldn't see it in Luke, because... Matthew's conscientious audience is a Jewish audience, and it was Jewish people who practiced betrothal. And the pagans and Greeks and the Romans didn't practice betrothal, but Jewish people is very serious with them. In the near context, in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19, divorce is mentioned. And a couple chapters later, it's mentioned again. The first mention there in, Ro- in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 19 about divorce is who's considering divorce there? Joseph is considering divorce. But how could Joseph consider divorce if Joseph wasn't married? Joseph and Mary are unmarried, and it says he, was, he thought about divorcing her, putting away. It's the same word. He thought about divorcing her. How could he divorce somebody he wasn't married to? Because during the Jewish betrothal period, it, required, it was a serious matter, and it required a divorce to break it. Some believe that, Matt, that, and some believe that uh, Deuteronomy 24, the case law this is referring to, is really only referring to the betrothal period because it says if they found some uncleanness in her, almost as if on the wedding night he discovers that his wife wasn't pure, then he can annul that marriage and that that was that, what it covered. Because if it was covering in Deuteronomy 24, if that was covering adultery in marriage, why in Deuteronomy 22 did it say that people that were involved in an adultery in marriage are subject to capital punishment? In other words, it's not about divorce, you die. So in other words, it wouldn't be consistent. Does that make sense? This is not something that you're going to get all figured out today while I'm talking because it takes a a student of the Word of God. What I am saying is this. Hear me now because you won't get all of this in in, in a 30, 35, 45-minute message. But this this I would have you understand. Most of the people that I talk to do not base what they believe in the Word of God. They base what they believe in their own understanding or in a kind of a mash of what the culture believes and what other people have taught them. And I'm just saying... You tell me what you believe, but you show me the Bible verses so that you have a strong conscience and so that permanence of marriage is rescued for the sake of our kids and for the sake of our culture and for the sake of our church and for your own sake and for your own conscience sake. So be a student of the Word of God. Be a careful student of the Word of God. And this is the kind of the way that you should approach it. And so in, in uh, the, the word of pornea is used here, not moikia. The, there's a word for adultery and there's a word for fornication. And the word for adultery is used in this book, but it's not used here. It's the word for fornication. In other words, this word is often used with sexual perversions or it's often used with sex before marriage, the pornea word, the fornication word. And the word for adultery is obviously when a person is married and they have relations outside of their marriage. So the word that's used in our text today and in chapter 19, or the only two exception clauses, the word that's used here is pornea. It's a word that would be appropriate for betrothal, but it wouldn't be appropriate for adultery in marriage. Jesus would have used that specific word, I believe. The third reason is that the no marriage understanding is is the nearly unanimous view of the earliest leaders of the church. They are considered the church fathers in the first 300 years of the church, and they wrote on many different things. It's not scripture, but they wrote, their, uh, they wrote what they believed about many different things. Almost the unanimous opinion of the church fathers, almost the unanimous conviction of the church fathers was there was, there was an exception for, that allowed for divorce in some case of adultery, but no exception for remarriage. There would be only one dissenter, and, but, but all of the church fathers, they believe the first 300 years of the church. So one way to look at it is like this. You might say, hey, pastor, you're telling me that you don't believe that you should ever divorce or remarry. Like, that's right. So, you, so you're saying that even though mo, that most other evangelicals don't agree with you, you that's what you believe. It's like, that's right. Now, so if you take what do evangelicals in our time believe, then our view would be the minority view. 
But if you broaden this historically and you capture the, 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 the entire church, and, and then we would not be in the minority view at that point. Do you understand? We would not be in the minority view, but we would be well in the majority view, of, especially when it comes to remarriage after divorce. This would be another reason. Fourth, the formula that Jesus used in his teaching, you have heard, but I say to you, demands a stricter interpretation. Does that make sense? Everything he says is, you've heard this, but I say this. You think you go to hell if you kill somebody. I tell you, you go to hell if you call somebody a fool. He comes along and he says, you think you, you, you're, you're guilty before God if you commit adultery. I say you're guilty before God if you have lust in your heart after a woman. And then he says, and you say, you, you say um, it's, you, if you divorce somebody, give them a, a bill of divorce. And I say the only exception to divorce is when you find there's an uncleanness before you're married in the betrothal period. Other than that, no exceptions. So in other words, that interpretation is the only one that keeps the logical flow here of this formula that Jesus used when he said, you have heard, but I say to you. Does that make sense? So that's, the, that's, that's uh, why in Matthew chapter 19, in the passage in Matthew chapter 19, he gives this teaching to his own disciples, and their reaction is fascinating. The reaction of the disciples is not, thank you for clarifying that, or that's what I thought, or that's what I believe. The guys looked at each other, and they basically said, wow, it would be better not to get married at all. This sounds like it's forever. He's like, that's right. Oh, well, that, that's very serious. Matthew 19 uh, verse uh, 3, is it lawful? The question was, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any cause? And as you probably know, if you're a scholar, a student of this, or there are a couple of major rabbis had ideas, and they're kind of always wrestling, which rabbi do you agree with? And Jesus was never agreeing with any other rabbis. He's his own man. So with authority, he says, no, I don't agree with your lenient rabbi. I don't agree with your strict rabbi. I'm going to tell you what God says. And that, so it's very... That's why he answered and said to them, in other words, they said, is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife for just any cause or any reason? He said to them, have you not read, which of course is kind of in your face to tell people that are big on reading, right? The law. Have you not read that he who made them at the beginning made them male and female and said, for this reason a man shall leave his father and mother and be joined to his wife, the two shall be one flesh. So then they are no longer two but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let not man separate. It's Genesis. Written by the hand of Moses under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. And they said to him, why then did Moses command? Now, the other said that was the end of the line. Jesus wouldn't have said anything more. They asked more questions. Why did Moses command to give a certificate of divorce and, and to put her away? This is, again, a reference to Deuteronomy chapter 24, verses 1 through 3. He said, Moses, because of the hardness of your hearts, permitted you to divorce your wives, but from the beginning it was not so. In other words, the, the, the case law regulated divorce. It did not command divorce. It did not commend divorce. It did not advise divorce. It just regulated it so people wouldn't be hurt by it. And I say to you, whoever divorces his wife except for sexual immorality and marries another commits adultery... And whoever marries her who is divorced commits adultery. Then his disciples' reaction is telling because they say, if such is the case of the man with his wife, it is better not to marry. They're like, this is a hard statement. Yes, Jesus intended for it to be a hard statement. It's kind of like an appeal to all of us singing today about God's grace. God says something. All that Jesus says, sometimes we reduce what Jesus said into a list of doable things. And sometimes it's just impossible to do that. Right? The Sermon on the Mount is not to be reduced to a list of doable things. The Sermon on the Mount was to be seen as God's perfect standard of righteousness that would bring us to our knees at the cross, that we would be prepared to receive the gospel and the grace of God to give us the, the wherewithal, the desire and power to do what he's commanded. And this would be true when you get to a hard saying like this. For some of us, this is a very hard saying. Now, you may think, well, Pastor... I don't understand. What about me? I'm divorced. Or what about me? I'm divorced and remarried. What should I do? Where does that leave me? Well, let me just speak to you a word of hope and encouragement about this. What should you do? I, I know I've used it before, but I've got to tell you again. I, I love the little thing on my tom tom. You've got those little directional things. It has a little house on it. It's a little icon. It's house. It's like home. 
And no matter how stupid you are and how far away you are from home, how absolutely lost and you didn't listen to your wife, you can always just like turn it on and hit home and we'll tell you how to get there. And my friends, I want to tell you, this book is like that. God never just gets us lost and doesn't get us found. He never just takes us off somewhere and says, wow, you're in trouble. Wow, you're doomed. <laughs> no, no, no place for you to go now. There's always a home button to hit. There's always a way to say, God, is there a way back? And I want to tell you that way. Understand this. What should I do? What should you do if you're divorced? If you're divorced, don't remarry. As long as your former mate is alive and unmarried, pray for restoration. Live single and pray for restoration. You might say, well, what if I'm divorced and, I'm, and I already remarried? You're telling me that was wrong. I believe so. What if I'm divorced and I remarried? Can I suggest you see it God's way and say it God's way? In other words, study the Word of God on your own. Not just what I've said here. You're going to need more time. You're going to need to deal with all the passages. You're going to study this. Study this so your conscience is informed and your mind and heart are informed. Come to conviction. What does God say? Then you say what God says. If you made a mistake, there's a way to unravel those mistakes. It's called the cross of Christ. But not as long as you're protesting your innocence, saying, well, I didn't do anything. I was wrong. I'm defending myself. Don't defend yourself. Don't demand things. Just say, I was wrong. In some cases, you might even look at your wife and say, you know, we didn't, we shouldn't have, we didn't really have. In many, many cases, people, don't, even on the broadest interpretation, do not have any kind of biblical grounds for divorce or remarriage, but they did. What, are they doomed forever? Of course they're not. But they need to hurry to the cross, get on their knees, avail themselves of the mercy of God, say what God says. And I believe that the best thing you can do is make that a part of your testimony. Don't hide it, but make it a part of your testimony. Because there are others that are just desperate. I mean, even in our audience today, I know that there are people who think, well, that's really nice for you to say, Pastor, because, you know, you've only been married once. You don't understand what I've been through and my heartache and the difficulty of my life and my loneliness and my failures and my guilt and my shame and all of that. No, I don't understand that. Jesus does understand that. And over and over again, he calls out from the cross that you can come and be forgiven of any wrongdoing, but you must repent of your sin. You must see things God's way and say things God's way. And in so doing, then you're restoring the picture of the permanence of marriage, and then you're restoring a testimony for your children and for your grandchildren and for other young people in the church saying, no, I didn't do it was right. Let me tell you why that was painful and what I would do if I was you and I had it to do over again. Don't just be quiet and hide out, but be open about your testimony in that way. Don't break a second marriage. I believe in, if you study Deuteronomy chapter 24 carefully, you see that it's an abomination to go back, to get married, divorced, marry somebody else, and then go after death or divorce to go back and marry the first one. The scriptures say it's an abomination. It's not pleasing to the Lord. That's the case then. I believe the scriptures are teaching that we shouldn't break a second marriage. If you're in a marriage, admit and it was wrong. Admit that it was wrong. Stay there. Obey the Lord. Honor the Lord. Demonstrate the permanence of marriage. The reason, other reason I believe that is, what, remember the woman at the well? Jesus is talking to the woman at the well, and he's telling you, the, the man you're with now, she must have been living with the guy. He's not your husband. You had like five husbands. Jesus himself acknowledges that there was some covenant that she made. He recognizes they were husbands, even though he shouldn't have taken them as husbands. He see that he's, that there's some sense in which he, he sees that vow, that covenant that she made, and it's binding upon her. So don't break another marriage. Did I make that clear? If you're divorced and you're not remarried, there are worse things than being single. There are lots worse things than being single. I could give you, I could bring, I could bring my office and I could bring in witnesses one after another telling you there are a lot worse things than having Jesus as your, as your lover and your friend and your intimate companion and your fellowship and your life and having a testimony. If, you're, if, you, if you've already divorced and remarried, then study the scriptures and admit what you did was wrong. And seek God's forgiveness and say things God's way. Now, some of you are going to say, Pastor, I, I hear what you say. I've heard that before. I don't agree with you. I believe, I'm kind of with the majority in our time, and I believe that I was an innocent party, and the other person left me, and that means that I can divorce and remarry. Now, we understand as pastors, there are people who have a high view of Scripture, who love the Lord, and this is what they believe. We understand that. And the pastors over the years have understood that to be true. And we believe in, the, in individual soul liberty. In other words, you come to me with your Bible in hand, not with your opinions, but your Bible in hand, and you say, this is what I've rooted my belief in. This is how I understand this exception clause. We understand there's a place for you. There's a place of service for you, though you may not see things our way. There are good Christians who don't see this the same way that we do. And that doesn't exclude you from Christian service. 
It doesn't exclude you from membership in our church. It doesn't exclude you from full fellowship in our church. We would just trust that God will work on your heart to help you to see what's right and work on our hearts to help us to see what's right. Here's, a, here's the way I've tried to express this to people. And this is a little sensitive, but stay with me because it's kind of a family talk today. I often talk with people all the time. I talk with precious people who love the Lord, who want to live for the Lord, who have been hurt. Maybe they've made big mistakes in their past, an initiator divorce they shouldn't have, or they were involved in immorality, or they're involved in drinking or drugs, partying, stuff that just kind of went with it. And so they damaged their own relationship beyond repair or for other reasons. Or maybe they were the victim and they, say, they come to me, what, what should I do? Is there a place in this church? Is this church just has this high view of divorce and marriage? Does it mean I, I need to go someplace that's got a kind of a, doesn't talk about or that's really light? Let me just make a personal appeal to you on this. Here's what I say. I've thought about this a lot. It's kind of shocking to hear. But I've thought about this a lot, so I say it carefully. At Evangel Baptist Church, we want divorced people to be here. At Evangel Baptist Church, we pray for divorced people to be here. At Evangel Baptist Church, we seek out divorced people to be here. Now, I, I wouldn't qualify that a bit. The reason I, we say that is for a couple of reasons. Let's say that you're a victim of divorce. And that's often the case. You didn't want it. You didn't seek it. And yet you're a victim of it. Then you shouldn't go to a church where the pastors skip over the pain of what you've been through. You should go to church where people honestly say what happened to you was a sin and that you were grievously sinned against. That's, that should be true. So if you're a victim of divorce, you should go to a church that teaches what's right about divorce. And it may, be, it may be true that you're guilty of divorce. And if that's true and you're unrepentant about that, then you need to be in a church where you hear that, your soul is in jeopardy, your spiritual life is in jeopardy, unless you have a faithful pastor that says you need to repent. You continually live with a hardened heart about that and you haven't repented. Well, the, right, the, the way to, to be a recipient of all of God's grace is to simply go to the cross, confess your sin, admit your sin, and be right with God. But as long as you protest your innocence, you're out in the cold. And so you need to be under the teaching of the Word of God where people say, I'm not going to just tell you the feel-good like, little theories that I have or the little series, that are little series of messages that are like happy series of messages, but rather we're just going to take what Jesus said. We're going to say, this is what Jesus said. You apply this to your heart. And some of those sayings of Jesus are just hard, aren't they? Because he wants us to get to the end of ourselves where it's impossible so that we will throw ourselves upon the mercy of God. Even if you don't agree, that doesn't mean there's not a place for you or that we're going to mistreat you in this area. But if you don't have those exceptions, say you come to me and you say, Pastor, I'm trying to make this really clear. Pastor, I understand what you believe about Matthew 5 and 19, what the other pastors believe, but I don't agree. I believe I had biblical grounds for divorce and remarriage. In that area, because of the sensitivity of that, in our time, our understanding of that, we would say to you, that's not a reason to exclude you from membership or discipline you or exclude you from service or to treat you poorly because we understand you have Bible in hand. This is what you believe the Bible to teach. Does that make sense? What I am saying here, and I want to kind of leave you with this thought, had a dear lady, a very, very precious lady, come to one of our meetings one time. And I talked to her. I liked her a lot. I think she liked our church. I mean, she did like, did like our church a lot. And uh, we sat through our membership classes. And at the end of the membership classes, she went away and didn't come back. One of the things we talked about in the membership class is divorce and remarriage. And her husband had left her. And she didn't, her pastor told her that it was okay for her to date, perhaps even remarried, though she hadn't remarried. She just felt a dark, perhaps in her heart, a dark condemnation, a heaviness, and she went away. I was watching Ohio State play football one afternoon, and I was thinking about her. And the Lord, I feel like, put on my heart, turn the TV off and go see that lady. And so I waited for halftime, because uh, uh, I'm, I'm not perfect. And, uh, and I, I, got, uh, I got out of my recliner, and I got in my car. You know how it is when you obey the Lord, it's always happier than sitting around being lazy and, Felt a happiness as I went to go visit this precious lady. I talked with her, and I just said to her, she was laying in her hospital bed, I said, did I scare you off talking about divorce and remarriage? She said, yeah, you did. I said, listen, don't go away. We love you. We want you to be here. You've been hurt enough. Would you please come back? And she said, I will, and she has. And then she said, I know you're an Ohio State fan. Don't you want to watch this game? So we know the grace of God was at work in her heart. 
because she's not an Ohio State fan, and you're not either, I want to acknowledge. And we stood and we watched football together for a few minutes, and she's one of our people today. And I want you to be one of our people. And if you're wrong, there's something in your heart that isn't right, let the Spirit of God tell you and make it right and say what's right. And if you've been hurt, understand by this, then the best healing is to see what God says. This is probably a dangerous illustration to use, but I ain't scared. So I want to close with a couple of things. I'm going to tell you a story. and have the family come sing with me or have Holly and Chuck come and sing. And, but I just need to tell you this. You know what I thought about yesterday? Johnny Cash would have been 79 yesterday. Some of you don't care about that. But he would have been 79. Died, Johnny Cash. And Johnny Cash was married and divorced and remarried. And he was a believer. After he, uh, he got involved in, he got famous and he got involved in dr- drinking, he got involved in drugs, he got involved in immorality. For the rest of his life, he lived under the cloud of the guilt and the shame and the remorse of what he had done to his first wife, Vivian. And he sought her forgiveness. He, he remarried, and it wasn't until after he remarried that he found the Lord as his Savior. He always sang Christian songs when he was young, but he said when he sang them, he didn't mean them. They didn't mean anything to him. But then in the 70s, when he came to faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, he had dark guilt, shame, remorse over what he'd done to his first wife and his four daughters and, and the sin that he'd been involved in. He sought out counsel from some of the best-known Christian leaders in our land, and he had a testimony. He didn't hide it. He told the truth about his past. He told the truth about his sin. He reconciled with his first wife in the sense that he sought her forgiveness. And when his second wife died, June died, and he a few months later he died, he had a meeting with his first wife in which she had some things she wanted to say, and she asked if she could say them. She could write a book and say these things, and she didn't want to hurt June, his second wife, She's a Christian. She didn't want to hurt him, but she wanted to say these things because she had in her heart a desire to have a restored testimony. And Johnny Cash, though I'm sure he was imperfect till the day he died, he did, he, as a believer, he did have a desire to have a restored testimony. And what I'm saying to you is this. We don't expect you to be perfect here. We don't expect you to have a perfect past record. But we expect you to take the sin that ravaged your life and, and get the grace of God and then turn it so that God will be glorified, so that he'll be honored, and so that your children will be able to stand on your shoulders so that they'll be helped and they'll be encouraged. We, we, when we're thinking about this, I wanted to end, and thank you for your patience. It's not easy to say these things in a short way. not easy for me to say anything in a short way, but when I thought about this, I thought it would be helpful to leave you with a song of encouragement uh, today that would encourage you to have faith to Ask for God's grace to do whatever it is that he's called you. So how are they going to sing you a song as we close today?